Learning English is hard. That's why I make easy stories in English, where you can have fun while you learn. You can listen to stories full of action, romance, and mystery. Each episode, I tell stories for beginner, intermediate, and advanced learners, and there's a story for every mood. Whether you want something to wake you up or relax before going to bed, Easy Stories in English is the podcast for you. The Yuba County Five podcast tells the story of a group of five cognitively impaired men who, on the evening of February twenty fourth, nineteen seventy eight, mysteriously vanished in the wilderness of Northern California. What had started as a quick road trip to watch a basketball game in a neighboring town ended months later with a grisly discovery inside a remote cabin in the woods—a discovery that only deepened the mystery and exacerbated the family's decades-long search for answers. Download season one of Yuba County Five wherever you listen to podcasts. You are listening to Murder Was the Case, exploring the darkest, most perverse, and bestial crimes known to man on Glassbox Media. This episode was made possible by the generous contribution of our patron Violet Fault at Patreon.com/MurderWasTheCase. Why should you become a Murder Was the Case patron? Ad-free content. Dozens of Patreon-exclusive episodes, including the Murder in Noir series, which looks at the unsolved 1947 killing of Beth Short, the werewolf murders, Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, lipstick killings, and so much more. Patreon is where the academies are, including my ongoing series on cults. Finally, you will find all five episodes of The Bloody Awards on Patreon.com slash murder was the case. Episode 300. In the words of Bill S. Preston and Ted Theodore Logan, whoa. My guest is private investigator Jason Jensen, and we're about to start picking through smashed doll pieces. You might think the John JonBenet Ramsey case has been done to death, but... That's only because nobody invited the doc to the party. Kick it. Welcome to the sixth season of Murder Was the Case, everyone. I told you I had something interesting in the works, and I'm about to unveil it here. With me is private investigator Jason Jensen. Jason and I met through my other show, Citizen Detective, when we were looking at the Rachel Runyon case, and became interested in him and learned that he is working on the Jean Benet Ramsey case. I know a lot of you have felt that you've had your fill of Jean Benet Ramsey, but I haven't. And I'm not sure that it's been looked at with the neutrality and as thoroughly and enough ways as I think that I want to look at it along with Jason. So we're going to tell you about something that we're planning. But first of all, Jason, welcome to Murder Was the Case. Hey, thanks, Doc. It's good to be here. I admire your work and, you know, sixth season is commendable. Yeah, thank you. I didn't ever think it would go this long. It just started as a hobby with my late girlfriend. And here we are six seasons in. You know, sixth season, I'm starting to think I want to do something more in depth. I do a lot of variety across the seasons. But as we get into this, I think that I've covered so many topics and so many crimes. It's time to really go deeper on a single crime. And the JonBenet Ramsey homicide is something that I haven't touched at all on the show. And I think we should probably get to your role in 
the investigation of this. Let's just get this up front so people can know where our allegiances are. Sure, sure. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, I admire you to desire to do a deep dive in this case. This is one of those cases that has such scrutiny and such wide interest. It's really kind of intimidating. And it was a case that felt so daunting that I myself didn't want to get involved in. But I always seem to get dragged into a case here or there simply because of a favorable answer to a single question. That's what happened with the Rachel Runyon case, where in that case, I asked the mother, hey, is there a possibility that your son didn't actually see an African-American perpetrator, but maybe it was Hispanic? And the answer came back, well, yes, he didn't know for sure. And as a five-year-old, if you're Caucasian, any other race may just be one big conglomerate group, of uh, non-white. Yeah. Of, yeah, it's just yeah. non-white. So he, to this day, believes he's Hispanic, and that really opened the door to that case potentially being solved. When it comes to the John Bonet Ramsey case, I reached out to John Ramsey and asked him a single question. As a cold case investigator, you know, I have a common background such as yourself. You're the vice president of ASOC. I've been a member of ASOC, and I founded the Utah Cold Case Coalition. And last year, we rebranded as a national organization, dropping the word Utah. So one of the first cases I thought to reach out, uh, since we didn't have that national attention yet, was John Bonet's case, because here we are, 25 years cold, and now we've passed the anniversary to the 26th year. Anyway, so I reached out to the Ramses and I asked a single question after I postured my background saying, hey, usually, you know, these kinds of crimes are committed by a neighbor. We learned that in the Angie Dodge case recently solved in Idaho a couple of years ago. And there's been others. You can just Google it. Cold case solved neighbor and you'll see dozens of examples that are just recent even. So I reached out to the Ramses and I asked, is there a possibility that's a neighbor? And John responded back saying that the police, because they quickly so focused on the family as this is a crime in the home, that they didn't even bother to do a neighborhood check. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, that kind of violates uh, Investigations 101. You go check to see if the neighbor saw somebody suspicious that night or check on the neighbors and verify alibis. And for them not to do that, and here we are 25, now 26 years later, I thought, well, that's definitely an angle worth looking into. Well, this cold case society that you have sounds really interesting. I didn't know that you were working the case through that society. Is it open to new membership? Oh, yes. Always, always. We're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for experts in the different disciplines because it's not very common. It's usually retired law enforcement, but that's not the only kind of people that we encourage to join us. We even opened up Intermountain Forensics, a nonprofit DNA lab. Mm. Uh, a couple of years ago. And, you know, we're just getting past the point now where it's starting to get self-sufficient after pumping money into from our own coffers. You know, mm. Tara Porter, one of our co-founders and her mother, Betty Porter, have dumped in over a million dollars out of their own accounts just to mm. keep it afloat and pay for payroll and for the reagents and things just to do the job until it got self-sufficient. So finally, and they take donations and they do case on a nonprofit basis. 
And we just recently made it a daughter corporation, nonprofit, separate from the Cold Case Coalition and established its own new board where I no longer have to chair the, the board of the lab since I don't feel like I have that kind of specialty right. to, to be the, the director of the lab anymore. And I'm still just now the director of the board for the coalition. Okay, well, this sounds interesting because I'm thinking there could be even uh, more wider repercussions for what we do here. Because if you'd like to have someone who's very good at behavioral jump on board, myself, I'd be happy to apply to join the society. And then we could take the work that we do here and rather than just giving it to the public as a form of entertainment and education, maybe some of the things that we discover, we could submit to the formal investigation of the case through the cold case board. Wonderful, because uh, Kara has always been asking me, we need a profile, we need a profiler. So we'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah, why not? Okay, well, just got more stakes in what we're doing here. So I just want to clarify, you spoke with John Ramsey, and you have a relationship with him, but you don't work for him. Right, right. And the reason for that is I feel that you know, and it's well-deserved. John Ramsey is pretty loyal to Lou Smith. And after his passing, his daughter has taken over the case and they formed a team and they're pretty loyal to that. And I wouldn't want to get in the way of that, but certainly if they were to invite me to join the team, I wouldn't say no. But aside from that, just for the fact that I like my independence, I don't have a problem either way. I like to form my own opinions. I like to blaze my own path. Mm -hmm. And if it leads to different conclusions than their team, I'm good with that. From where we're standing right now, you've spoken with John. You have a pretty good relationship with him. Is it fair to say that? Right, right. I have their blessings to maintain my independence and investigate and do as I please. And so far, it's been pretty productive. And the family has given me praise where at times it's deserved because some of the stories that we've uncovered have had actually made the pressways. For instance, the emphasis of the SBTC reference, that's the signature of the ransom note. We learned over the course of the last year that two professors there at the University of Colorado actually put together a paper referencing SBTC and the university is only half a mile from the Ramsey's home. So it really kind of opened my eyes that potentially the perpetrator could have been a student of theirs that lived in the neighborhood, which since they were right across the freeway, more or less, in that neighborhood of the university, it's entirely possible that it's a student that would walk through their neighborhood on his way to the campus. And I think this is why I became interested, because I'm a bit of a contrarian. And whenever everyone says, okay, well, it's not officially solved, but we all know that the answer is this, I'm the kind of person that goes, do we? I want to state, though, that doesn't mean I'm going to come in with a contrary finding. I just want to see for myself. I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters, available wherever you get your podcasts. What if your daughter disappeared? Your mother, your son. What if years have passed and you're no closer to finding them? 
When a person goes missing, their story doesn't stop there. Each week, Missing brings you stories of missing persons and justice sourced from the case file of the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing. Listeners say Missing is the most binge-worthy podcast of all time. Search Missing wherever you listen to podcasts. Missing, where mysteries have a mission. And so I think we're both reasonably neutral here. We could say that maybe you have some warmth towards the Ramses. I might have a slight bias towards not the official opinion, but we're going to do our best to be completely objective. Does that sound good? That's very fair to say, because I've always taken a neutral stance on this. If the Ramses tomorrow say something adverse to me, it wouldn't shake me at all because I'm still interested in helping the community solve the case as much as anything else. Okay. So where do we start with this then, Jason? I mean, you're already into it, but we've got to make this a show. I think we want to walk through everything. This is what hasn't been done. Even when we were looking at doing a timeline, you and I noticed that it says on December 23rd, the Ramses did this. On December 25th, they did this. And I said to you, well, what did they do on the 24th? And what did you find out about that? That we're still waiting to hear. I reached out to John, Jan, and John Andrew, as well as the reporter for the U.S. Sun, Luke Kenton, who recently interviewed John. And none of them responded back except for Luke. And Luke said that they didn't even address the 24th. So I'm waiting to hear back from the Ramses. Well, right there, that's a big problem. And I'm going to assume that somebody knows somewhere. But how can everyone be so sure of, of what happened when the December 24th publicly is just totally missing? <laughs> like, I would think you're looking at possibilities. Of course, a lot of people think the family was involved somehow. But then there's also, if not them, it's some sort of intruder. Well, were the family home on the 24th? When were they home? Was the door open? Because that's important if we're going with an intruder theory. And it's also important if we're looking at an inside murder, right? So right. it's not something you can skim past like, ah, 24th, not important. Of course, it's important. Right, right. Because you don't know if all of this led up because somebody was casing the neighborhood looking for some place to burglarize, you know, like home alone possibilities are great that they targeted the home and then they came across, for instance, John's pay stub where it said that he had received a $118,000 Christmas bonus, although it was from the year before, but reported every pay stub thereafter. It wouldn't be a surprise to me that somebody would sit back and say, well, rather than grabbing their TV, let's get this money out of them. So if we don't know what the timeline uh, was leading up to this, or even if there was some oddities with the residents leading up to this or the neighborhood, we don't know if there was an intruder and can exclude it otherwise. It's also, and this is quite far-fetched, but you've got to consider it. They had a party on the 23rd, and so they had all kinds of people come into their house. Maybe the intruder, in one of the Lizzie Borden theory fashions, actually hid inside the house, because my understanding is it's quite a large house. They could have stayed in there. Now, I don't think that's what happened, but you've got to put it on the table. So then what did they do on the 24th becomes really important, once again, because there could have been someone in the house. Exactly. All of the activities or oddities leading up to that may have relevance. Okay, so what we've got to do, I think, is we've got to get that timeline established. John, he worked outside the home, right? Do we want to know when he got off for Christmas? I'm assuming it was before the 23rd or at least on the 23rd? Yes, you would wonder if he spent days before that off because the 23rd was a Monday. So for them to have the Christmas party on a Monday, clearly he was off at the time. And he traveled a lot because, remember, his company was part of... Lockheed at the time. And so 
you know, it would require a lot of travel for his line of work doing software. Okay. So that's important. We want to get that. Also, one of the more infamous aspects of this case was JonBenet's involvement in these pageants. And of course, people speculate, well, maybe some pedophile had his honor from one of the pageants. Well, okay, when was the last pageant? I think that's important too, because if it was a year ago, that becomes more and more far-fetched. But if it was quite recent, it becomes more likely that somebody would spot her and then keep it on his mind. And so I, I think that is important. And where was the pageant? Was it local? So if we can find that out, that would be crucial. And we know from the recent reporting of the U.S. Sun through John Ramsey via Luke Kenton is that there is a possible connection with a 16-year-old being raped in the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. and they've given her the pseudonym of Amy, and she went to the same dance company as John Bonet, Dance West. So if they were both targeted from somebody that was being a creeper at the dance studio, it's entirely possible that that's where this intruder comes from is a connection with the Amy thing. Okay, so let's try and get a timeline beginning when John left work. I'm going to presume that's a bit far out from the 23rd. And then also let's find out when the last pageant was and and where it was. And so we'll try and put that together. That's probably not going to be an episode, but that's going to be a component, I think, of what are the facts, which may take one or two episodes. We'll then go from the investigator's point of view. This phone call comes in and they come to the house. We'll go through the hours there up until Jean Bonnet's body is found. And then I mean, that's probably going to be a lot of time because there's a lot to cover there. And I imagine after that, we'll talk about things like the autopsy and the processing of evidence. So I think what's going to be crucial is listening to that 911 call because I actually have training in how to analyze 911 calls to look for indicators of guilt or not, right? So that's something I can do. And once again, I don't have any interest in this. I'm just going to run it through the checklist. So can we get that full phone call? The full phone call is available online. All we have to do is play it. Okay. And so that's public. So I'll be able to take that and put it on the show too. Okay. That's good. So with that day, is there anything specific you want to look at, Jason? Actually, this struck me too. There's a infamous broken window. When was that broken? Right. That was broken over the summer when John accidentally locked himself out of the house and he broke the window and let himself in. That is the infamous window that they're claiming that the perpetrator, if there was an intruder, couldn't make his way out. But if John can climb in, why couldn't an intruder climb in? But that's where we get into the debate whether there is an intruder or not, because everyone was so fixated on the ransom note and claiming early on from the law enforcement perspective that the handwriting seemed to match Patsy's handwriting. And given the fact that it was on Patsy's note tablet and used a pen from their desk, that it had to be Patsy. When, from what I've seen, experts have claimed that it wasn't her handwriting. So you got a debate between the experts. So I tend to look past that. When there's a legitimate debate between the experts and I lack the qualifications for that field, I don't try to take one side or the other unless I'm going to take two investigative paths. If there's a debate, an honest debate between the experts, I jump past that and say, okay, well, let's look at the crime scene. Let's look at the evidence. Look. Look at the victimology. Let's look at other things that have 
been tried and proven to identify a perpetrator or, or how the crime was committed, rather than just be so tunnel focused on the ransom note that you lose sight of the actual crime. Okay, so if we can get handwriting experts, particularly two with different opinions, to get them on the show, we'll get them to discuss that. I don't think that would be too hard to do at all. I don't know if they're too keen on the idea of being pitted against one another, but certainly portraying their own versions, their own opinions. There's plenty of even video out there where experts have voiced their opinions saying that these characters are the same or how they join these two letters are the same. There's different ways to look at it. You can look at the actual handwriting style. You can look at the linguistics used and you can even look at what types of words are using because some things identify your region. Some phrases and stuff are unique to different regions of the world, if not just you know different parts of the country. So sometimes you can see something or hear something that an individual says that you would never say, but you understand what they're saying because you're familiar, but that's not part of your vocabulary. That's not part of your linguistics. Now, I think that the note wasn't written by an organization. I don't think it was a a small foreign faction, but we'll consider it. What I do have, I did my dissertation on looking at communications made by murderers, basically violent offenders. So what I'll do is, even though I don't think that it's a legit communication as in it's saying what is really happening. I'll interpret it as if it was, and then uh, we'll see what we get out of that. That should be really interesting. So we've got handwriting experts. We'll get them on. We'll do one where I interpret the letter. I'm actually curious about this. John had a lot of money. I understand sometimes you're locked out of the house and you're just frustrated and you want to get in quick. So I can understand breaking the window, but it's strange that if I had that much money, The minute after I broke the window and got in, I would call someone, hey, my window's broken, come fix it, I don't care. But it stays broken from the summer all the way to the murder. Like, I'm not saying that it's unbelievable, but if I had that much money, I would very quickly have that problem fixed. Do you understand where I'm coming from with that? I do understand, and stuff like that does cross my mind, but it is a fact that they dealt with and just ignored it. Because I know just from my own personal experience, there's no way I'd get away with leaving the window broken. No, <laughs> I'm no. not in charge. It's my home, but I'm not in charge. Right, exactly. Even just from a point of view of animals and damp and having to deal with that, you'd think that you just want to get that dealt with. But maybe that's something we'll put on the back burner there too. But I don't know that's ever a question that anyone's really focused on. So we get to the day of the murder. There's also the infamous voices in the background of the recording. We can look at that. Right, right. And I don't find it all that clear. I mean, others can say that, oh, I hear Burke and there's a conversation. I don't necessarily hear it. So I'm not the expert on that because I don't hear that decibel, that pitch very well. So I don't make out the sounds that others are claiming that they hear. But then you could go back to that debate that was big a couple of years ago on social media. Do you hear Yanni or Laurel? Yeah, I remember that. That was odd. And then once once you hear one, you can't unhear it. And the issue is if you tell people, listen, you can hear Burke and then you can hear Patsy, then they're already primed to hear that. So they go in with a bias that's going to lead them to interpret it that way. I've never actually given that a good proper listen. I just was sort of half watching a documentary that was on. So yeah, I'll try and do that without bias. I couldn't make it out. There's been plenty of times 
in my profession as a private investigator, people have sent me recordings, you know, and all you hear is snow or static. And they say, I hear voices and they're trying to tell me to dig through the wall or whatever they're saying. And aliens are trying to talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I don't hear anything. You're probably having auditory delusions mm-hmm. because it's not there. Or you convince yourself you've heard it. But either way, it's like, if you can't share a recording with me about your neighbor talking about you, I can't run to the police and convince them. Here's a recording of the neighbor right. talking about you. It's called apophenia, actually, the propensity to find patterns in meaningless data, which, you know, it can be audio data or whatever. So that's also a thing as well. So we'll try and give that a listen. Maybe there's even some kind of test we can do with that with people who aren't familiar with it. People that don't know the case, take three of them and have them listen to it and say, do you hear voices? Does it sound like a man? Does it sound like a woman? What does it sound like they're saying? Do they come to the same conclusions? that the people who know things about the case do. So that's a possibility too. It is. It is a possibility. But I also question if that's the case, why is it that they can hear this conversation occurring now, 2020s, but back then in 1996, they didn't hear that conversation. So I question whether this is just an afterthought because you would think that the police investigators at the time would put their best capabilities to it, the best technology And if they can't hear it then, why is it that we can hear it now? How about this too? We go through the layout of the house floor by floor because it's an interesting house. There's a basement, there's a ground floor, there's a second floor, there's a third floor. It's not really usually well laid out for the audience. They kind of skip by it. But I think that's crucial too, because there's two sets of stairs and there's many different bathrooms. There's lots of different ways to enter. So we should probably focus on that somewhat too. give people a very clear picture of that. And then we're going to have to do the evidence. Where was the evidence found? And then we're just, would you reasonably expect something to be found here? And if not, why not? Right. And see, that's a great idea because oftentimes the layout is brought up in conversation to say somebody was familiar with their usage of the staircase in the back going to the kids as the reason why the note is left back there. But when you actually know the proper layout of the home, it makes sense. The reason why it was left there is going down the stairs from that location is to the basement to where the window is. So it was left there out of convenience to go downstairs and not necessarily because it was intended to be easy for someone coming down, you know, a parent to come down and see the note, in my opinion. Right. Okay. So yeah, I think the layout of the house then is crucial if we're going to look at how the evidence or lack of it is distributed. We'll spend some time on that. And I think it'll be a great conversation between you and I, how we think the crime was committed, where JonBenet was taken from, whether it was her bedroom or the kitchen. When you compare that to her stomach contents, the type of injuries she sustained, it's going to be a very interesting conversation between you and I, because I already have an opinion from my analysis of the autopsy photos and the crime scene photos. And I look forward to see what your input is and what you have to say. Well, that could be interesting. We could even just do an episode where you put your theory forth and then I'll just attack it. We'll stress test it and we'll see if it holds up through that. We could get it out and then I can stress test it, but I could even get the listeners to say, do you see any holes in in what Jason's saying here? And they could submit some stuff too. So that's good. There is the DNA that was found, was it in 2008 or something that was found on 
Jean Bonnet's underwear. And it was the reason that the Ramses were eliminated by the, was it by the DA? Right, right. The DA at the time issued an apology to the Ramses, mentioned to them that she knew that the police were focused on them and that there was an injustice carried out, that they were just focused on the ransom note and that was done by Patsy, that they went to the grand jury and the grand jury couldn't come back to determine whether she did it or he did it. And that because of their smear campaign from the police, that's why all of this attrition occurred and why the Ramses have been vilified for well over 20 years. And she issued an apology in 2008 because of the foreign DNA in her underwear. So why don't we get Susanna Ryan on to talk about that? She's a DNA expert, right? Yeah, she's great. She's a colleague of mine. So I'll get her on to discuss that. We'll do an episode on the DNA, just on the DNA. Sure. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny. Or how it feels to be shot? I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True firsthand stories, including 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Search for What Was That Like? on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Hey everyone, I'm Sean. And I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of The Horror Show, the show that dissects, mutilates, dismembers, and butchers all of your favorite and not-so-favorite cult classics and horror movies. Join us every week as we pick another movie that we try desperately to find the good in while laughing our way through the bad. And there's a lot of bad. So join us every week on any of your favorite podcasting apps and services, or find us at IHateHorror.com or on Instagram at IHateHorror. Adios. Lots of possibilities here, too. You know what? The Ramses also were really criticized for things like their body language and their affect and the words that they used in subsequent interviews. I wonder if we could get somebody on who is an expert in body language and those sorts of things so we could have those interpreted. I don't actually think all that stuff is really that important. I don't think you can get a conviction on that. I wouldn't want that to come up in court, but it's just more that we can look into as well, right? Right, right. Just to add more depth to the discussion rather than my biased opinion, looking for confirmation. We take people one step at a time chronologically, maybe on subject matter, and then argue about it. There's no reason that we should be in a hurry. No. Yeah, so we'll just go into every depth and nook and cranny of this case that is possible. So then I'm sure more stuff is going to come up as we go. But also, we look at the scenario, um, okay, it's not the Ramses. It is an intruder. Well, let's do a profile then, something behavioral. What kind of person would come and do this, would leave this what is probably a hoax ransom note? Did they mean to kidnap her and it didn't work out? Or is that never supposed to happen? And if this, then what kind of person? And if that, what kind of person? So I think one that's just on the behavior of someone who was an outside intruder would be really key too, because what we're going to do then is that we're going to look at other suspects in the case. I think we could go through ones that have been cleared, but were prominent just for historical purposes. But also maybe you have some suspects and maybe there are other suspects that should be compared to a profile in the event that, hey, you know what? Everyone is wrong. It wasn't the Ramses. It is an intruder. Right, right. And I've already gone through the process from my investigation where I've identified a possible profile. So I'd be happy to share that with you or you develop your own profile mm. and we'll exchange and compare. 
Yeah. And what we'll probably find is we'll move little bits here and there and it'll be stronger by combining two. So also something like linkage analysis, right? Is this a one-off? How do we know that? Have we looked at other cases around Colorado at the time? You mentioned the 16-year-old who was raped. What about other uh, child molestations or homicides? Like, can they be linked to it? Because then there's the issue of like, okay, but the DNA didn't ping on any cases, but that's only if the DNA on the waistband is the DNA of the perpetrator and not of someone else. Right. And it's my understanding that the actual profile from the underwear is a mixture. And we know Mm -hmm. in our field, you can't identify a mixture. You can't parse them out and separate them to identify individual profiles from a mixture. So I don't even think that that's current technology in place to identify who it is. Have you been inside the Ramsey's former home in Boulder? No, but it's my understanding that it's vacant, that it's owned by a family that bought it after them, but they're having trouble reselling it. So it's not even in use right now. It'd be great to do a walkthrough and even take measurements, but that's for another day. Yeah, that might be a bolder project down the line, but I'm into it. I do know someone that has been in it. I think you met Cloyd Steiger. Do you know Cloyd, the detective? No, no. Okay, you'll like him. He's a good friend of mine. He's been in there and walked around. So one of his observations was it's smaller than you think, which is interesting because we're led to believe it's this opulent mansion. It's not really the case. That would explain why the Ramses converted their attic into their own bedroom. They were looking for the greater space because otherwise, why not be on the same floor with the kids? Right. What about looking at the Ramses too? We can do this simultaneously from an inquiring perspective, but also from a humanizing perspective where we look at the family. Uh, who was John Ramsey? Who was Patsy? How did they meet? What was life like up until then? What was life like after that? So uh, a kind of a, a dual victimology, but also looking at suspects. So we'll, we'll try and st- strike a balance there too. That's going to be at least one episode. Yeah, I think that would be only fair to them because, you know, after being vilified for so many decades, an opportunity to humanize them a little bit would be grand, I think, and fair after all these years. Maybe when we get into this enough, if any of the Ramses, if John or or John Jr. like what they hear, and that's a long shot, I think, but maybe they'll even want to come on and talk with us. But I don't want to have them on early because like I said, I don't want to bias things. And there's something about getting close to people. You don't want to get too close. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's best to look at the crime first as a crime Mm -hmm. and then look at individuals and either rule them in or out as a potential suspect. I'm trying to think, Jason, is there anything that I've overlooked? There's so many aspects of this case. Okay. I know it's been discussed as a staged crime scene. Why don't we get an expert on staging in to explain what they think about that, or even two or three. Right, right. Because there was a discussion that it was staged early on when they believed that the ransom note was a hoax written by Patsy. The next natural belief would be that the murder scene down in the basement was staged because it's like all of a sudden the kidnapping failed and they left the victim down in the basement. But that being said, if you actually get past the note like I did and look at the crime scene for what it is, I actually see it as an actual failed abduction down to even how the ligature marks are made on the victim's body. It, to me, looks like they tried to lift her out of the window. So Mm. we'll go into that because in my report, I did a preliminary report and shared that with the Ramses where I've identified 
five myths. One was about the ransom note not being written by Patsy. One, that the crime scene down in the basement wasn't staged. One about the ligature was a garrote when, no, it looks more like it's a handle. It was intended to use as a pull cord rather than to asphyxiate because there's only one handle and the other side is tied to JonBenet's wrist. So I believe it was an unsophisticated attempt to use it as a pull rope to take her out of the basement window. And then the next myth was whether she was tased. We all are familiar of the famous mark on her cheek. There was claim that it was potentially a stun gun, but we know that now after all these decades, stun guns don't incapacitate you. Only when you're being charged do they leave you rendered where your muscles are not responding to you and you really go into like a frozen posture but mm-hmm. as soon as you eliminate that you're able to scream yell get up run or whatever so back then that really kind of portrayed it as they used the stun gun to knock you out well that's not how stun guns operate and the mark in my opinion is not really a burn it doesn't even look like a burn it looks more like a bruise and i believe it was caused by her right index finger from when the guy was trying to pull her out of the basement but we can go into that in more detail when we're doing the autopsy analysis or the crime scene analysis i think what we do is we have either an episode for each of jason's myths of the case so five episodes or we can do a couple in in one episode or maybe even one episode just on all five myths so we'll get to that maybe after we've done the autopsy and gone through all of the basic housekeeping then we can start to get into okay jason tell me about this stun gun that wasn't a stun gun let's spend some time on that and if it takes us a whole episode we'll do that maybe it'll only take us 10 minutes and then we'll move on to the next so i think we should have those as separate little chapters in the series I agree. I agree. And it wouldn't be hard to find someone that's an expert on stun guns to offer their insight. And then we can get more clarity, whether that looks like a burn or if it's a bruise and what does a burn look like and why is there a burn? And why is there only one alleged burn here instead of two? Because we do know that a stun gun, in order to operate properly, it has an electroprobe and a ground probe. And if you only got one, where was the other probe or the barb that would cause the circuit? It's going to be very interesting indeed. What about looking at other cases? We're going to have to do some research, but other cases of failed child abduction from a house, we can look at cases where it's been a family member that's done it and then has been staging to cover it up. So we can look at cases that are like JonBenet Ramsey and see where there are discrepancies and where there are similarities. And then maybe that'll help guide our interpretation. Right, because something like that is very helpful when you see where they have conclusively determined it was an abduction Mm -hmm. by a family member, how it was accomplished and what the telltale signs were as opposed to an intruder abduction. It's always great to then do that comparison with an unsolved case. And you can see, are these similarities more in line with a family abduction or more in line with like a stranger intruder? Exactly. I think to begin, we've got quite a lot of avenues of exploration here. And I'm going to make this a big part of season six of murder was the case. I'm really excited about it. Is there anything I've overlooked that occurred to you? No, no. You know, there's really two camps here. And I think it's fair that we explore them both mm-hmm. where you got a family member did it camp and you have an intruder did it. And it's fair to cover them both because no matter what we do, if we focus on one or the other, you're going to get attacked by the other side. So if we want a fair, balanced audience, we have to be fair and balanced in our presentation. 
Yeah, and we'll always consider it to be a work in progress. It's going to be a process of doing this. So there won't really be much finality at the end of any episode unless we have a eureka moment where like it absolutely could not have happened like that. But we're going to be constantly working through this. We don't know. Like maybe we'll get to the end of this. We will have gone through it all and we're still going, I can't figure it out. But we'll try and weigh down at the end on one side or the other. We'll have all these different experts coming in along the way. And I'm just hoping that we can get something else out of this because I don't like the idea that this case, which is actually a really complex case with lots of different evidence, behavioral, forensic, that it's like, oh, it's obvious it's done, that it's being compared to like OJ or something. I don't think it's quite that clear. Right. It is not very clear because we do have so much out there. And, you know, usually like When I look at a case and I try to take it from a cold case to a warm case, I look for even one fact that was overlooked or one misapplied detail. Here, I've identified five myths. So if there's five, that just makes it even more dynamic, more complicated, because any error in judgment or any misapplied factor detail can lead down to a new branch. So if we got five and they can spider web out, it could take us completely into different corners that haven't even been explored yet. And I believe in this case, there hasn't even been the name of the perpetrator been raised yet. So mm. we really have a lot of work cut out for us. And so does Boulder. They've always had that work cut out for them is if they're really pursuing the theory of an intruder now that, you know, at one point the prosecutor apologized to the Ramses, well, then who did it? And if you don't know who did it, because we're looking at who went to the party, we're looking at was there somebody that paid them a visit somewhere on the week of Christmas, whether there was some oddity, did they find the door unlocked, did they have a neighbor that got ransacked, anything like that could become relevant. And then that takes a whole new direction of a potential suspect. So if those things aren't being explored, we're just being too nearsighted and it's never wise just to focus on the named people that have already been present for the last 30 years whether or not fleet white could have done it that was a family friend why would he do it whether it could have been the grandpa or if it could have been santa claus all these were explored and i'm sure the police have already come to conclusions he didn't do it he didn't do it so why would we be down those same paths Yeah, I think we can touch on people who have become suspects, but yeah, if they're cleared, we'll just say, okay, and then they looked at this guy, we'll maybe give it three minutes to talk about that, because then we can say this person was ruled out, and so we we don't have to do that. But I think what happens is that you have web sleuths or whatever, and they want to solve it, but they only have a limited number of names of people that could do it. So they're looking at what names are in the story, almost like it's an Agatha Christie mystery, right? As if the name's going to suddenly appear in there, and You and I know that if it is an intruder, that it's probably somebody who wasn't around. Their name hasn't popped up. So, And if it was a one-off, that person will never come up as a suspect. Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. 
Search your podcast listening app of choice for Practical Stoicism and join me each week to explore Stoicism practically and discover how it can help you live better. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember feeling my body hit the ground. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. 911, there's a man at my back door trying to get in. Search for What Was That Like? on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. I think that that's probably good for now, Jason. We have a, a plan laid out. What do you think for the first couple episodes? I guess what we have to do is we have to start with the facts. So we look at timeline. That probably won't take a whole episode. What if we do timeline and the phone call and arriving and finding the body and all that? We won't do any analysis of it. We'll just lay it out as narrative. And then for this maybe third and fourth and fifth episodes, we can start going into things like analyzing the phone call, looking at the autopsy and, and the wounds. And, and so what we'll do is is we'll establish that and then we'll take everything that happened there that was a piece of evidence and we'll reanalyze it. And if we can't do it, we'll bring someone on to do it before we move on to additional suspects. I think that's a great plan. Okay. And then when we've thoroughly gone through all that, then we'll let that lead us. Maybe then we go into Jason's myths. Fair enough. Yeah. Because at least gets us a starting point to open the conversation. Because if I give like a opening statement now there's just like in a trial there's an opportunity now for someone to come in with cross-examination some additional argument or maybe even a new talking point okay so we've got a plan of action i think for uh, probably a good few months so with that i just uh, hope that you're all very excited about this if you're thinking oh i've heard about john Benet and ramsey before well we promise you we're going to get into new territory here as much as we can because the plan isn't just to retread things and just repeat other people's opinions, although we will have to do that somewhat. But we want to bring something new to this, and I think that we will be able to. And with all the the experts and specialists that you and I know, we can hear from a plurality of different voices, meet a lot of people. And I think if we can even get one new insight on it or do something to move along this ossified case to kind of wake it up a bit, I will consider that a success. I agree with you. And I think the thing that we bring to the table is we're not working for Boulder. We're trying to support their theory. We're not working for Ramsey trying to support their theory. We're coming at it from a completely different perspective. Now, you know, I have some warm contacts with the Ramseys, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm all in. We all want the truth. We're all doing a community service here. We want to solve this case Bring justice for John Bonet. Okay, everyone. Hope you are as excited about this as I am. Look for it in the coming weeks and months. Closing down the dive bar. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Jerry Kolber, co-creator of the hit science shows Brain Games and Brainchild. I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, Who Smarted, which gives listeners a big whiff of science and history while making learning funny for kids and families. With three 15-minute episodes a week on lots of cool topics, Who Smarted is perfect for car rides, bedtime, homeschooling, and classrooms. If you love laughing and learning, check out Who Smarted wherever you get podcasts or at whosmarted.com. If you had the right information, could you create a better life? 
I'm Chris Stemp, the host of Smart People Podcast, one of the best podcasts you've probably never heard of. My producer, John, and I started the podcast 12 years ago when we got burnout on corporate America and wanted to figure out a better way. We've asked top global experts, including Brene Brown, Simon Sinek, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and hundreds more, how to create a better life. With over 10 million downloads, this is one you don't want to miss. Subscribe and follow Smart People Podcast wherever you listen.